Hallelujah. Do you know the way maker? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Even when you don't see it, he's working. Even when you don't feel it, he's working. Amen. He never stops working. Amen. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't take a break or a vacation. He's always working. Amen. Amen. And he's working it out for our good. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I'm glad I know the way maker. I'm glad I know who he is, who I need to call on in the middle of my circumstance. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. We're excited to get into the word of the Lord here tonight. We're about to start a whole new series here tonight. Uh, the series is simply David and Solomon. David and Solomon. In fact, tonight our lesson is the first in this series called The Unexpected and Overlooked. The Unexpected and Overlooked. Before we get into the word of the Lord, I'd like to just take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to have his hand on this lesson here tonight as we delve into his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we thank you, Lord, for your word here tonight. We ask you, Lord, that your word would jump off the page, Lord, and speak to us, Lord. We pray, God, that we would learn of you, that we would grow in you and our relationship with you as tonight we study your word, as Tonight we learn of your word. We pray, God, that your word would become something so precious to us, Lord, that we are spiritually fed by it on a daily basis, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to talk about, in this series, David and Solomon. Tonight's lesson will be on David And in subsequent lessons, we will get into Solomon as well. Uh, just last Sunday, didn't we have an incredible service this last Sunday morning? Amen. Amen. The Lord ministered throughout, and amen, through the word that Pastor Barber preached as well. Thankful for that word and thankful for the move of God following that word. An incredible service. One of the things that we did in our sun Sunday morning service is we uh, did our Servant's Towel Award. How many remember that last Sunday morning? Amen. And Brother Brandon Turnage was our recipient of the Servant's uh, Heart Award. The Servant uh, Heart, we give a towel that recognizes that individual as having the heart of a servant. And often the individuals that receive this award are people that are not here on the platform, that are not people that you see front and center or in a, in a position of leadership, but often individuals that are behind the scenes doing the work of God, uh, not necessarily looking for recognition. And so tonight we're going to talk about those that are overlooked sometimes, those that maybe aren't the ones that you would expect would be receiving the Servant's Heart Award, but the people that we recognize are indeed servants and who have the heart of a servant, and therefore we recognize them not because they're well-known or that their work is done uh, is known uh, throughout the church, but oftentimes it's unknown. 
And so we're going to talk a little bit about that in our lesson here tonight. Uh, before we get into our lesson, I'd like to turn your attention to 1 Samuel chapter number 16. I'm going to read several verses of Scripture so you can remain seated. Beginning at verse 1, and it says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite, I'm sorry, I have difficulty saying that word, but for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take an heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord and call Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show thee what thou shalt do and thou shalt anoint unto him unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, comest thou peaceably? I wonder if the elders of the city had a guilty conscience that the prophet of God was in town and they're like, you guys coming peaceably? Are you here peaceably? Please don't tell us you're here to bring the wrath of God or something. So, uh, And, of course, Samuel uh, responded, Peaceably I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen him, or this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. Verse 11, and Samuel said unto Jesse, are there any other, I'm sorry, are there all, are here all thy children? And he said, there remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and withal of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. 
bringing your attention back to verse 7. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So important that we get that concept that God sees the inside man or woman. He, does, he doesn't look on the outside as all we can see is the outside. We can see the exterior and we can judge based on the exterior, but God knows the heart and God judges based on the heart. You see, God uses often those that the world overlooks. You see, we live in a world that is all about the superficial, right? If you look to Hollywood, you see it's the beautiful people. It's the muscular physique or, or the talented or charismatic individual that gets all of the recognition. But God often sees what the outside doesn't reveal. That's the inward that God sees, you see, we should not only know that God looks on the inward heart, but God also works in ways that are unexpected. Too often we have in our own minds the way God should be doing things, but God has a way of doing things that often doesn't coincide with the way we think need, things need to be done. Amen? So this series that we're, we're embarking on tonight, uh, we're going to cover Israel's second and third king, that is David and Solomon. We're starting right where David was anointed as king, and we're going to finish up where Solomon prayed for wisdom for, to lead God's people. As we explore how God worked through their lives, we will embrace how to answer God's call in our lives and to serve in his kingdom. I felt like Sojourner Truth was pushing down on one shoulder and Harriet Tubman was pushing down on the other, saying, sit down, girl. I was glued to my seat. These words were offered to Newsweek magazine in an article by a profoundly courageous African-American woman in Montgomery, Alabama, who refused to give up her bus seat to a white person in 1955. Though subsequently arrested, the aftermath of her act of self-dignity ultimately resulted in a court case that ended bus segregation in Montgomery and across the state. She will forever be the heroine in the civil rights movement. You may think this historical count, account is about the late and honorable Rosa Parks but it is not. In fact, some nine months before she took her stand against this racially prejudiced laws of her day, 15-year-old Claudette Colvin had done the exact same thing. Having just completed a unit of study on great African-American leaders in America, Claudette asserted her constitutional right to retain the seat for which she had paid. Two police officers forcibly removed her from the bus amid a torrent of verbal abuse and insults. She did not retaliate. 
She did not curse or swear at them. No, in fact, she quoted the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer. This teen girl's act of courage helped, at least in part, to embolden Mrs. Park's actions months later. For various reasons, the NAACP chose Park's case to be the face of the challenge for the segregationist practice. However, a relatively unknown 15-year-old girl lit this fire of justice first. She was the behind-the-scenes influence that helped write a moral blot in America's story. You see, often the unknown, the unheralded, the overlooked have played a significant role in our country, throughout our history, and often in the kingdom of God. Our king looks beyond what humanity sees, and he sees the potential in our lives to make an impact. While we often present excuses for why our background or our family or the challenges that we face make it impossible for us to do anything great in the kingdom of God, but he looks beyond those obstacles. And he calls us with his grace, and he knows that with his grace, we, he can accomplish anything in us. You see, you've heard it said before, the devil is a liar. And the devil will tell you that your past disqualifies you. Your family dynamic may disqualify you. You, you have messed up in your past, and therefore you cannot be used of God. Well, the devil is a liar. Amen? You may have even tripped up since you've been living for God. Well, the devil's still a liar. Amen? Because you got back up and you kept serving the Lord, and the devil will tell you over and over again, you don't qualify. You're not perfect. Well, guess what? None of us are. But if the Bible tells us, of course, if a righteous man fall, he falls seven times. Well, the only way you can fall seven times is if you keep getting back up. Well, if you're going to live for God, sometimes you're going to fall, but you just got to get back up. Amen? And don't listen to the lies of the devil who will tell you that you are not qualified. Some would look at David and said, yeah, he's, he's not qualified. He's the youngest. He's a shepherd. He's insignificant in the family. In fact, everyone around him overlooked David. When the second king of Israel was to be anointed from Jesse's household, no one in his family thought David would be the one to experience the anointing oil. That is evidenced by the fact that nobody even brought him up. Like, Jesse brought out his sons. All right, we'll start with the oldest one. All right, Eliab, here you go. All right. All right, how about the next one? How about the next one? How about the next one? All right, there's all my sons. And Samuel's like, wait a minute. Is this all your children? Is this it? And he's like, well, there's, there's David. <laughs> he's out there, but he's out in the field. But nobody even thought that David should even be there. He asked him to bring all his sons, and he didn't bring all of them because even his father didn't think he would be the one. But it doesn't matter what your family dynamic is. It doesn't matter what your background is. The reality is God can use anyone, and 
he can use you. God has a purpose for me. He has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for each and every one of us. He has a calling for each of us. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, that means you too. Amen. Amen. God's design was not for Israel to have a mortal king. You see, God was to be the king. It was a theocracy ruled by God, and God was to direct his, his people through his prophets and priests. There was never meant to be a king or a person sitting in authority over the nation. But you see, Israel was distracted. They started looking at all the nations around them, and they're like, man, everyone else has a king. Why don't we have a king? Well, the reality is they had a king. The Lord God Almighty was their king. But yet they wanted, they started getting their eyes on the rest of the world. They began to demand that they had a man that would sit on a physical throne in Israel. Despite all the warnings to the contrary, Israel measured their success by natural metrics rather than their obedience to God. God was the one that delivered them from bondage. And yet, God delivered them from a world of bondage only for them to of, turn their gaze to the world in which they had bondage to go, wait a minute, but they've got a king. Could it be that their eyes were on the world and that they thought the world's way of doing things was better than that of the Lord's. They wanted to be like the world. That is a lesson even for us today. When we, want to when we desire to be like the world, we're on the wrong path. Amen? God called us out to be separate, to be different, to serve him and the Bible says, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. We need to be different than the world. We don't need to incorporate the world's ideas into the church. Amen? But in response to their insistence, God acquiesced and provided them a king. Though that choice would in time prove to bring heartache to Israel. You see, at times God will even give us what we're asking for even to our own hurt. That's why it's important that when we ask God for something, that we carefully consider what we're asking for. Because if you ask him for something, and you believe he'll give it to you, his word says you'll have it. But maybe it's not what you need. So sometimes you need to be careful when you're praying for God to give you something, because he knows better than you what you need. Sometimes we think we know it. Sometimes we think we got it figured out. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when Saul thought he had it figured out as well. When God gave Israel a king, he did not set them up for failure by selecting someone who was inclined to fail. You see, at the outset, Saul was a good man. He had a humble spirit. In fact, if we look back at his very beginning as a king, we find a young man that was accepting counsel 
from the man of God. He worshiped, he prophesied, he hid himself from public acclaim. But sadly, his story didn't end that way. You see, Saul's failures were manifold by ultimately his direct rejection of God's instructions to him. You see, the Amalekites were the avowed enemies of Israel. The Amalekites were so evil that God's wrath was up to here and God had had it. He was done with the Amalekites, done with them. And so God instructed Saul through Samuel to destroy Amalek, that is the Amalekites, including all of their possessions. Nothing was to be spared, not the women, not the children. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, God wanted nothing left. Complete and utter destruction. The fierceness of God's judgment should have convinced Saul that God was quite serious about this matter. But you see, instead, Saul chose to evaluate the Amalekites from his limited human perspective rather than through the lens of God's righteousness. You see, God had given a direct command, very specific instructions. Nothing was to be left. Everything was to be destroyed. Every individual, every animal, everything was to be destroyed. Yet, yet Saul spared all of the parts of Amalek that he considered not to be too bad. Well, this is pretty good, and this is, yeah, we won't destroy that. That's, wow, that's, I think that's worth keeping. But yet the, the direction of God was utter destruction, completely gone. Yet that overt rebellion against God's clear commandment marked the tipping point. You see, Saul could no longer sit on Israel's throne with God's favor because he disobeyed the Lord directly. Saul delivered the fatal, I mean, Samuel delivered the fatal message to him directly. He said, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. You see, God was very clear in his instructions, and because Saul directly disobeyed that and knew exactly what he was doing, God said, you're no longer going to be king. You see, we find that in Saul, when Saul was king for 20 years, he went from humility to rebellion. You see, Saul's attitude was, I know better. I know better, which is ultimately what resulted in his rejection from God. Amen. May we never have the attitude, I know better than God. I know, what's, I, know what I need to do. I, I'm not going to listen to the word of God or the calling of God. I know better. From a pastor's perspective, it, uh, from a, a saint's perspective, it may seem easy for the ill-informed to assume a pastor takes lightly the responsibility to rebuke wrongdoing or Maybe they feel validated when the dire consequences about which they foretold and warned a saint about come to pass. 
You see, nothing could be further from the truth when it comes from the true heart of a shepherd. Only a shepherd's love for his sheep and concern for their welfare compels the difficult task of confronting wrongdoing, just like Samuel did with Saul. And that same love breaks a shepherd's heart when observing sheep ignoring counsel and continuing the path toward destruction. Samuel was no different than a pastor of today, the true heart of a shepherd. Though many of Saul's actions grieved and likely even angered Samuel, still Samuel loved Saul and loved the fact that God had put him in the role of king. Though Samuel was faithful to give Saul the appropriate rebuke and sentence of God, still Samuel's heart trembled for the consequences. Though he never went to see Saul again the rest of his life, the Bible's testimony of how Samuel felt is clear. We read this uh, similar, but it, it says it also in, in uh, 1 Samuel 15. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. When we are cor corrected or rebuked by our pastor, we have to remember it is to keep us on the right path in which God has for us. If we're never corrected when we are wrong, we will find ourselves eventually at a place of destruction. Aren't you thankful for a shepherd? Amen. Samuel's obedience to the voice of God caused him profound grief, as noted by the significant use of the word mourned. This word indicates his emotions were like those of someone who had been touched by the death of a loved one. Doing the will of God did not exempt Samuel from that bitter taste in his mouth. You see, life can be difficult. Sometimes the challenges are a result of hell's direct attack in your life. Sometimes there simply are poor choices. And even at other times, they're simply part of the fact that we're living in a life after the fall from the garden. Amen? But it is simple and, and an undeniable fact that hardships and pain will come. One only need witness enough sunrises to endure days of difficulty and challenge. The fact is true of those who do not serve God, but it is equally true of those of us who do. Redemption does not mean every day will be filled with sunshine and ocean breezes. No, instead, we, all, we will know, as Samuel found, that doing the will of God will be mingled often with tears, too. Not every day is going to be a happy one. Sometimes there's tears to be shed, too. With the end of Saul's reign having been pronounced on him, the task of discerning God's will for his successor became paramount for Samuel. The decision had to be guided by God as human perspective on the matter ultimately has already proven to be no good. Saul had appeared to have every natural advantage. He was tall in stature. He was a natural-born leader and yet his leadership ended in ruin. 
In fact, we use him often as one to look to as an example of the pitfalls of confronting a leader. Who would God select to step into the newly formed leadership vacuum? How would Samuel proceed? We cannot ignore the fact that not everyone would know of God's rejection of Saul. It's not like Saul went and told everybody, God rejected me, I'm no longer king. In fact, he still acted as king even after that. It's likely that a few had heard these faithful words from Samuel to Saul. The Lord had rent the kingdom of Israel from him and had given it to a neighbor of his that is better than him. That is what Samuel said in First Samuel 15. Those who do hear likely could not imagine it so. Their very first king had whom God had hand-selected, was now rejected by God. I'm sure the question was asked, how can this be? The man that God chose has now been rejected by God. It was not at all unreasonable to think the king would have had Samuel arrested and executed for treason should he dare to name a new ruler. Yet God gave him clear instructions, and the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. We have a video here real quick, if you want to play that for us. When my wife and I went to Ecuador as a missionary in 1968, Ecuador was mostly involved with the caste system. This is important for the information that I want to share with you because it was amazing. The rich were rich and the poor were very poor. The poor work for the rich with a meager salary, and so it is, it is vastly important to know this. But one day, while my wife and I were at home, which was sometimes a rare event, uh, an end tourist pulled up beside of our house, and would you believe that the vice president of the secular government of Ecuador was there to meet with me? The work in Ecuador had, had grown so fantastically that it came to the attention of the Congress of Ecuador. And so when we allowed the vice president to enter to our astonishment, him being there, he began to explain to me. He said, Reverend Scott, we need your help. We want to deed you 10,000 hectares of land for your people. And I sat there and I wondered what in the world is going on. And he said, the fact is that in the, in the uh, border of Colombia, they're enroaching upon the territory of Ecuador and we want to establish a new community there. So what we would like to do 
is to deed you the hectares of land, 10,000 hectares of land. And so I stood there and I wondered what in the world. Then he explained further. He said, what we want you to do is to establish the Ecuadorian families of your, of your organization in that area. We want you to establish 200 people in order to form that congregation or rather that uh, new uh, town site that we're going to uh, give you. And they can have around 200 acres of land for their farming purposes. And so I considered this, and because our people were so poor at that time, I wondered what a benefit it would be if they could leave their employment with the rich uh, landowners and have a farm of their own. However, when I really thought about it, it would be at the cost of evangelism. And so I looked at him and I said, how much I appreciate what you're doing and what you're thinking of and how the Congress has conceded to give us this particular area of land. However, I am a missionary. I am not a real estate agent. And we want to continue to do what we're doing for evangelizing this country for the cause of Christ. Now, I thought a couple of times how difficult that would be to turn that down if the people knew they were uh, awarded this kind of territory. And then I thought, no, we just won't say anything to them about it. It will be a secret, and we'll continue our evangelization of the country of Ecuador. How many times I went back to that moment and thought about it, did I regret my decision? No, I made the right decision, and I'm yet right with it in my mind. So the Lord bless all of you. It was doing the right thing in a right way. Amen. Amen. Sometimes, sometimes what seems to be the right thing to do, the Lord directs us in a way that would be unexpected, you know, and as Brother Scott put, you know, God had directed him to not go that route, but that they were to focus on evangelism. Sometimes we don't have, we have clear instructions from the Lord, but what our surroundings tell us is something different. And so uh, while Samuel thought that one of uh, Jesse's sons would be the next king, God told him differently, and ultimately it was David. Can you imagine what it was like there in Jesse's home, the commotion that was caused when Samuel shows up? Now, we read the scripture earlier. Samuel shows up, and the people of the town, the town leaders are like, are you here peaceably? 
please, <laughs> please be nice. Um, and he says he's here to sacrifice for the Lord. He invites uh, uh, Jesse and his sons uh, to the sacrifice. And then the commotion that must have taken place in his home because he explained what he was there for. I'm here to anoint the next king. Well, this father's got eight sons. He's like, he's here to anoint the next king. I'm sure all of the sons were talking amongst themselves, wondering who's going to be the one that gets anointed. Is it going to be me? How about you? I don't think so. It's, it's got to be me or whatever. Who knows what the conversation was going on amongst the sons, but it certainly caused quite the commotion. In fact, when Samuel saw the eldest son, Eliab, he immediately assumed, based on nothing more than the man's stature and appearance, that he was God's choice. But God said, nope, not that one. In fact, he probably envisioned this man to be the next king as he saw him as the oldest son, and yet God said, I've refused him. It is likely Samuel was somewhat confused by God's concise disqualification of Eliab, and perhaps even more as each successive son of Jesse was rejected. You see, the exclamation can be found in the further words of God to Samuel in the same verse, the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. God's criteria for kingdom service and particularly for kingdom leadership is not visible to the casual human observer. It's not what you can see on the outside. It is found instead in those characteristics that speak of character, integrity, and a passion for the things of God. Peter, in fact, called it the hidden man of the heart. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, but it is not hidden in the least from God. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So hidden man of the heart, that's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. The scripture I just read, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Those attributes are the only discernible in the hearts of, hum of humans and are what qualify someone or ultimately disqualify someone from being used of God. It's nothing more, nothing less. It's what God sees on the inside, the hidden man of the heart. It is imperative that our life choices be made using the same set of values that God does. Giving favoritism because of connections, talent, or appearance in lieu of the condition of a holy heart is not pleasing to the Lord. In fact, if you read in James chapter 2, James writes about people coming into the uh, sanctuary there, one in costly array, the other in vile garments, and God instructed not to give favoritism from one over the other. And so we're not to judge based on the exterior we are to let God direct us in, in how people are to be used of God simply because he sees what we cannot see. He values the intangibles 
that we cannot see. If he places worth on motives and attitudes, so must we. The Bible, the world itself is filled with a lot of Eliabs, the ones that people expect to be that person that God would use. But God looks on the heart. He makes the right choices. Jesse's youngest son seems almost an afterthought in this drama. All the sons were rejected and not even mentioned David until Samuel specifically asked for it. Even then, the tone was almost dismissive. And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. While we may make a sheep, uh, those that keep a sheep a noble pursuit, that wasn't necessarily the perspective in Bible times. Shepherds were generally considered unclean and unwholesome. For some reason, he was seemingly not favored, as were the other brothers. Perhaps they were merely deemed, they nearly deemed him too young to even be recommended as king. Whatever the cause, no one picked David except the one who matters. Don't let the enemy convince that you are disqualified from being used of God. doesn't matter what other people think. It only matters what he thinks. Amen? We don't need to get hung up on what other people think about us. It's his opinion of us that's paramount. Amen? That is the most important. I want, I want his favor. I, it doesn't matter if I don't have anybody else's favor, but if I have his favor, that's the favor I need. Amen? And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. There is no ambiguity in God's next instruction, nor any question left in Samuel's heart. The one others forgot and discounted was elevated by God to the ultimate prominent position in Israel. We serve in God's kingdom and for his pleasure, not for ours. Our ideas, our will, our comfort, and our pleasure are not at all significant. While we may have our own conceptions of how God's work should unfold, these, truthfully, hardly matter at all. God alone decides, and he can and will do as he pleases. Psalms chapter 75, verse 7 says, But God is the judge. He putteth down, and he setteth up another. You see, I firmly believe that God puts people in power. The reason why we have the president that we have today is not necessarily because we voted, but because God put him in that place. Amen. That was God, God putting a, a man in place. Everyone in power, God takes one down and puts one up. That is, that is God's doing, and God has full, full reign in that regard. I want to conclude by reading a story. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Uh, it took place many years ago, but we don't know his name. We don't even know what became of him. We don't even know if he is still alive today. Most just call him Tank Man. You see, what we know is that he's an individual of profound courage who could not even know that his actions were being observed on that infamous morning. 
In the spring of 1989, a hunger grew among many in China for political and economic reform. The fiscal growth in the nation over the previous decades had exposed many in the oppressed country to foreign ideas and lifestyles. For just over six weeks, student-led protests had erupted in Tiananmen Square. In Beijing, demanding significant changes in the social construct controlled by communism. Some felt it would be best to negotiate with the protesters and to make some concessions, but the hardliners held sway. The protest would be stopped by whatever martial means necessary. The crackdown was to begin on June 3rd with columns of tanks advancing amongst the protesters and crushing many. After two days of brutal conflicts and terror, the world witnessed Tank Man do the unthinkable. You see, he placed himself in the path of an advancing column of tanks and even continued to move, maneuver in front of them when they tried to go around him. He brought that mili military might to a stop while holding two grocery bags in his hands. Suggesting that he had not even planned on being there, but he found himself in this historic moment. He did not look physically imposing. We will likely never know if he was an intellectual genius or a financial guru. Was he a white-collar leader or was he a blue-collar laborer? We don't know. In fact, history has hidden those details from us. The authorities soon removed him from his place where he stood and took a stand, but the worldwide attention he received brought criticism and economic sanctions against China from numerous countries. It is truly amazing what an ordinary individual can do when guided by principles. God can take a common person and change the course of a family, a church, and even a nation. I'll read that one more time. God can take a common person and change the course of a family, a church, or a nation. Doesn't take somebody that's extraordinary because we know who is extraordinary. Amen? The accounts would be more numerous than we could recount of how an ordinary man or a woman answering God's call to a city or a country brought profound revival to thousands of broken lives. One who was otherwise on the far side of some hill, tending sheep and fighting off lions and bears in unseen battles, suddenly felt God's anointing oil running off his head. God has big plans for you. He has not designed you for the ordinary. He has created you and saved you for something more than just the ordinary. Others may not see it. In fact, at times you may even doubt it yourself. But still, you have a bright destiny that God has for you. So go ahead, David. Keep your heart right so God may see it and exalt you in due time.
if we'll just keep our heart right and keep doing what God is asking us to do. God can do great things in us. Amen. We don't have to live in the ordinary. We can be used mightily by God. God can do great things in us if we have a heart after God. Amen. Would you stand? Amen. Let's pray in dismissal. I want to thank the Lord for his word tonight. Amen. The insight that we gain from his word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the insight that we are able to glean from your word. We pray, God, that you would continue, Lord, to work in every heart in this room, everyone listening online. We pray, God, that you would work in our hearts, Lord Jesus, so that we can be used of you, God, not just in the ordinary, but in the extraordinary. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.